You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Come in. Kamal Khan to see you. Bond has escaped. How careless of you. I apologize. Oh, by the way, Kamal, I'd like you to meet my new house guest. Uh, an old friend of the family, you might say. How lovely. You have a nasty habit of surviving. You know what they say about the fittest? Oh, the pussy, I would enjoy another opportunity to take care of Mr. Bond personally. I will take care of Mr. Bond myself. Good day. And enjoy yourselves, Mr. Bond. Welcome to the 602 Club. I'm so excited to be here tonight. We have so much to talk about. We're diving back into Bond. He has returned for Octa Beep. I'm sorry. I can't say that word on a friendly family network. So uh, welcome to the show. I'm so excited that you're here. Um, and we have some amazing guests, as we always do, as we're going to talk Bond. I am really glad to have back the one and only Christy Morris. Oh, the one and only. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I've I've never met another Christy Morris, so you know. Okay. Um, well, then yeah. I am the one and only. I'll Absolutely. take it. Absolutely. I'm there thrilled you to go. be back. Well, it's it's great to have you here uh, to talk this one. And uh, as everybody knows, if we're going to talk Bonds, the one and only. John Champion, or should I say, sexy Ulysses S. Grant. <laughs> Great to see you, my friends. And uh, yes, for those of you who are hearing this, who um, maybe don't follow me on uh, Facebook or uh, or Instagram, yeah, it, it's uh, it's Halloween time, and um, I had to do something a little weird, so uh, I decided what an appropriately sexy Halloween costume could I create, and uh, sexy Ulysses S. Grant was the one. That was the winner. The funniest thing is, is that I saw that as we're recording for posterity's sake, it is actually Halloween 2017 yes. tonight. And so, um, but I saw that come up and just a few days ago, I had been at the bookstore and there is a massive new biography of Grant. Yes, there is. And so I was, I, I don't, I don't know <laughs> if it was just that you had seen that too at a bookstore or something. And you were like, oh, this is the guy I could do sexy as. <laughs> it's time. It's time. It's time. Yeah, it's, time. it's just time, overdue. you know, yeah. so. Uh, before the show, uh, and we're not going to spoil it, but John may have uh, found his next sexy costume for next year, uh, and we'll keep that under wraps for you and, until we get to the um, 
2018 That's Halloween right. season. So, uh, but I'm so excited to hear here. As I said, you can find uh, every show that we do here on the network of Trek FM over on iTunes at iTunes.com slash Trek FM. And that's where you also find the 602 Club, of course. Uh, while you're over there, hit us up with a star rating review. Make sure you're subscribed to the show. Uh, all the reviews really help other people find the show. And when you're subscribed, you get the episodes as soon as I publish them. So make sure you're doing that. You can find us on Twitter at TrekFM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. If you want to have a more in-depth discussion, the Babel Converts, our listeners-only discussion group, is the place to do that. So go over to Facebook. Type Babel into the search field and you'll find us. Or if you go to our website at trek.fm, any of the show pages we have there, you can hit discussion and that will bring you over there. And then if you want further discussion, you can also find us uh, on trek.fm slash contact. Choose the show, choose the 602 Club, and that will come to me. And in fact, uh, I did just want to mention we got a couple emails. Um, one of them mentioned that they really enjoyed our conversation of the Justice League War movie and wanted to remind us to cover Throne of Atlantis because there are listeners out there waiting to hear that show. So thank you so much for sending us that email. Really appreciate it. And it'll be on the list. So um, we'll look forward to doing that. And then we got a great email uh, from Richard. He uh, mentioned maybe that we should cover the Dark Crystal. So I, I'm i thinking that might be a good idea too. I, I've, uh, confession time. I've never actually seen the Dark Crystal. So. I haven't either. I've heard of it. And, you know, Jim Henson, it might be worth doing. So uh, appreciate those emails. Uh, keep them coming. We'll keep uh, letting you know uh, what you guys are saying about the show. Uh, guys, we're back at Bond, uh, continuing Bond. And, um, you know, this is really an interesting Bond. We are talking about Octopussy tonight. Uh, if you got kids around, just earmuff them. We're probably going to say <laughs> that a few times. Uh, and uh, this is a movie that... Uh, Roger Moore didn't really even want to do. And uh, they, for various reasons, they get him back. But a few things I wanted to talk about with you guys as we're doing this. Um, they actually tested, screen tested, James Brolin with Maude Adams. And, um, John, we've talked a little bit th about this before, but why did they keep thinking about... American actors, and then being like, "Nah, we're going to go with the British." Guy. I, don't kinda, I mean, they're twenty years into the franchise at this point. I, I don't get the lack of confidence in the formula that they have. You know, they it, it, there's something about the Bond films that work better than any British export, except for the Beatles. <laughs> you know, it, it just works, and part of the thing that works is. The, the background, the sophistication, the style, it's all of that stuff that adds up to this image that we have of James Bond. They had tested Burt Reynolds. I mean, it, you say James Brolin, and all I can think of is a paging Mr. Herman, paging Mr. Herman, yeah. because it's James <laughs> Brolin playing P.W. Herman in the fake P.W. Herman film at the end of P.W.'s Big Adventure. Um can't picture that at all. Uh, but I also see in the notes that Timothy Dalton had been tested. And, um, and yeah, yes, which is, a thousand yeah, times yes, because we'll get to mm. him soon. And of course, he had already been in Lion and Winter. He had already been Prince Baron in Flash Gordon. Thank you. <laughs> you know, 
Thank you for making me watch that last year, yes. John. <laughs> so I don't, I, I, I don't get it. I, I don't get why they think they would have to reinvent the wheel that much. We, we see in this movie that 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 pendulum keeps swinging again. From they do something silly and outlandish, and they bring it back to something really grounded, and then they push it again to something silly and outlandish. Even if it's not the plot here, it is the sort of the trappings that are that are going that way again. So I, I don't understand what it is about production at this time where it feels like they kept doubting themselves. And I agree with you too, John, that it's either that they're doubting themselves or that they keep thinking, maybe we were trying to go a new direction. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe maybe we should, I guess I should say, yeah, yeah. Um, try something new. So I think it's either one or the other. I don't think that it's anything else. Um, maybe a mixture of both. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of the curse of doing any sort of sequel. It, it, the audience wants the same but different. So how do you make it familiar but different enough that you're telling a good story, but you're not throwing the audience into confusion? Right. Well, and I, I think this is one of those movies for Bond where that is clearly the case, as we'll talk through it. I think it, it's definitely the same but different. Mm-hmm. It's just not different enough, maybe, mm. uh, to to differentiate itself uh, or make itself stand out in that sense. Um, you know, I don't. I, I, I was thinking about this, and I even uh, I was watching the extras, and I saw the screen test, and and James Brolin's not bad. I mean, he has a much different look than anyone else who's played Bond. I mean, he's mm-hmm. huge, barrel-chested guy, um, but he's good looking he seems sophisticated um but he's not british and like you said john 20 years in i don't know how you could think about changing the nationality when this is so quintessentially british at this point there is no other way to think of james bond other than a british export a a british agent i mean it's all about the king and for king and country or queen and country you know there's there's no mm-hmm. there's no beating around the bush about that and you shouldn't hide from it and so it's very strange to me that they would even think about an american at this point um i mean i know we have british people playing all our quintessential american heroes now like spider-man and superman and i mean they're all played by british people these days but this I, I I don't know I don't know um, how you think about doing it and of course they don't and one of the biggest reasons is is that the rival Bond movie is being produced at the same time and is going to come out at the same time Never Say Never Again which is going to have Sean Connery and so they decide that they need more back now. I wanted to do a thought experiment as we do sometimes with the James Bond films because obviously when you're watching this movie, Moore is looking his age. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to ask you if this movie is done with, say, like Timothy Dalton, who they had looked at, or Pierce Brosnan, as we know, had caught their eye the last time they were filming – uh, because his wife was on set at the time. If one of those guys had done this movie, do you think it might have played better? Because I feel like Roger Moore's age here starts to get in the way. 
I would say with me more, it's not about Roger Moore, seriously. I think that it is the situation again of he's doing the best he can with what he's given. Um, because picturing um, Timothy Dalton in this one, I can't really. Pierce Brosnan, I'm like, yeah, okay, maybe. Um, but the story just feels so disjointed, like they're telling two separate plots. They're starting out with this, um, you know, Soviet deal where they're talking about NATO and not wanting, um, you know, to go to war, basically. And then they're doing this whole other plot where they're talking about these relics that are being stolen, the Fabergé eggs. And it seems like more of an art history story. <laughs> um, and so it just the whole thing, once you get past um, Bond's initial meeting with Octo, beep, <laughs> um, it feels like it just unravels and you're going, what movie am I watching? So I, it's a good question about Brosnan or Timothy Dalton. Um, they were both really young in 1983. And, you know, I, I'm glad that we got Timothy Dalton when we did. I'm glad that we got Pierce Brosnan when we did. I think if you had put either of them in this movie at that time, it would have been a very different movie. Part of the thing that works here is a little bit older Bond teamed up with a Bond woman who is a little bit older Bond woman than we've seen before. Remember my horror and embarrassment at BB in the last movie? The, those yes, scenes, yes, I think we all should. Right, right, right. The, those <laughs> scenes between her Heebie and jeebies. Bond just didn't work, even though she's fine and even though he's fine. The the writing, the context, everything just wasn't right. I le and I know that we'll get to the Bond women in this a little bit later, but um, the pairing of Maud Adams and uh, Roger Moore nearly 10 years after their last team up in uh, The Man with the Golden Gun, um, I thought was a, a, a really smart idea, and, and it allowed me to believe that a little bit more. And as you were just saying, Christy, the... Um, the the world around this bond, I felt like you needed a guy who had sort of been through it. You know, he, he's been through this Cold War tension. Yeah, I believe this guy knows something about Russian art and Fabergé eggs, um, more so than I might have believed uh, an early 30s Pierce Brosnan, you know? So I is this the perfect vehicle for Roger Moore? Well... There are problems with the movie that go beyond what Roger Moore is doing here. Again, like, like Moonraker, Roger Moore is doing his best given what he is given in this movie. You know, people always fast forward to the end and um, talk about Bond and the clown makeup in, in the, the scene in the circus. And here's the thing. It, it, it's sort of, I don't think it's silly. I, I don't think it's misusing Bond. I think there's a bit of terror in that. You know, because he is so clearly out of place and so clearly desperate and so clearly will not be believed by anyone there. You know, it, it, this is a spy at his absolute sort of uh, on the last straw to try to resolve this this mission. Um, so I think he's doing a fine job. I think he's doing a bang up job. There are scenes in this, though, where he looks a little, yeah, a little long on the tooth. But what are you going to do? I feel like it's not his fault. He came back, the offer was right, so sure, 
why not? It just wasn't the best movie to build around him. That, I think part of that is it felt like they almost needed to do the Star Trek II thing where you embrace the age. Yes. And yes. and I think that would have helped because the, like you're talking about those scenes at the end where he is very desperate. Nobody's helping him. You know, he's having to steal cars, you know, things like that. Like he's really he is very desperate to get the mission completed or else World War Three is going to start. I mean, that's what he's preventing. and uh, But you never feel those stakes because the movie has been so silly. Yeah. But if right. it had taken itself a little bit more seriously and given um, his age a little bit more weight uh, and made that a part of the, like, can Bond still do it? Uh, can he still perform? Uh, I, I, and I don't mean that in any of those ways. People put your mind <laughs> out of the gutters. Um but you know what I'm saying? Like, I think that is the thing that would have helped the movie because you're absolutely right. The The situation that he is in does need that more seasoned character. Mm-hmm. And Roger Moore is definitely that. Um, there's it, it's it's not him um, because I don't think either of those two were definitely ready for this mantle. Uh, but. It's really, again, I think the story and part of that is something that's so interesting because we're we're really in this place where they're making it up. Uh, They're making up the stories. They're not they're not using Fleming whatsoever. The only thing they're using from Fleming really are names. And I I think that in this era of um, James Bond, where it became kind of like paint by numbers or cut and paste and you just kind of like rearrange things is, is where we kind of got into trouble uh, in the in this, you know, for Roger Moore because they kept just kind of shuffling the, the deck um, with the story elements. And it never really, like you said, Christy, even at the very beginning, it feels like different things happening that don't necessarily like connect. Right, because, I mean, they're starting off with this auction, and it seems like they're on a mission to figure out who is stealing, and then go in this completely different direction of being concerned about warheads. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then, it, you know, like I said, I think that Roger Moore does a fine job of coming in and coming across as someone experienced and being matched with women that can stand up to his caliber and, you know, his experience level, it felt like Maude played an excellent um, businesswoman and like she was really coming into her own, but also limited by this other villain who doesn't really make sense with the story either, Khan. Um, I felt like Khan's henchman. <laughs> right, Path of Khan! <laughs> Uh, I felt like Khan's henchman was more of a scary villain than Khan himself or than this, you know, Russian guy that, you know, we see for here and there, but then he's really gone for the rest of the movie. Yeah, agreed. Um, There's there's a little bit of a disjointed feel, but I, I feel like if you if you can separate them out, which unfortunately you can't because you're telling one cohesive story here in a couple of hours, but but separating them out two hours and ten minutes. Right. <laughs> Not that you're counting. Yeah. <laughs> um 
there's some really great performances, really great characterizations here, but um, they are, it, it feels like the, they're trying to be really conscious of throwing the audience this curveball. Like, we're not even going to see Octopussy until about halfway through the movie. And then it's this reveal that it's Maude Adams, and here's what she looks like. And, and we're, we're not actually going to get to the thing about the warhead until well into the movie, you know, well later, to figure out why this would actually matter to anybody. So they, it, it's one of those situations where you feel like a writer needed to go back and, and sort of re-string the pieces together to really make it fit. Mm -hmm. You know when you're putting a puzzle together? And you think that piece fits, and you're sure it fits, <laughs> and but it just doesn't it fit. fit yeah. You right. know, and I I feel like that's kind of what happened in in this Bond movie that they're putting the story together, and it it's turned out like one of those puzzles that a five year old's done, where the pieces just are jammed together because it looked like they fit, but they don't really fit. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that's kind of what we get. And and like you said, John, if you break this down, there are actually some wonderful, fun, interesting performances happening. There's some great side characters in this movie. There's uh, some great uh, stunt work mm -hmm. that they do. It's a lot of fun. Um, but, you know, and, and in fact, this movie is kind of continuing the theme from, you know, the last one where, you know, we have very little gadgets. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no special car. Um, you know, the, the most special thing he has is that tiny little aircraft at the beginning, which is a really cool yeah. thing uh, oh, because yeah. it's a real, it's the real it deal. Real deal. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, but none of it comes together in this cohesive manner so that by the time you reach two hours and 10 minutes, which is way too long <laughs> of a film, uh, you. you, you are kind of. I don't know. I just feel like, you, as a as a viewer, even a Bond fan, you're like, oh man, well, I I could watch that part and that part and that part, but I don't need all this connecting stuff because I'm it, it's it it's just not keeping you interested, and that's frustrating because there are interesting points to this film. Um, I think that you know Bond's age is one of them. The story about the you know the the the, the jewel heist. Uh, is is pretty interesting in the way that works into um, this arms dealer octopusy is interesting. Her connection with you know Bond and MI six is interesting, but everything just kind of gets glossed over. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you know when you get that big reveal about that she's not really the bad guy, then you're just moving on to the next thing that's glossing over that. And it, it just keeps like they add layers and, and the layers, you know, don't make a great cake. Yeah. They don't always pay. They don't always pay off. Exactly. But it does seem like at first that she's going to be a really menacing villain from her introduction mm -hmm. where all you see is her hands. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. loved that. Mm -hmm. And, and showing the actual octopus I thought was neat. And then tying that into uh, Magda talking about her tattoo with bond when they're in bed together. I think all of that was funny and well-placed and connected well, but then it was trying to combine it. Like you said, Matt, with all the other pieces just didn't work. And then you end up waiting for it to be over as a whole. <laughs> rather than enjoying or being frightened by anything. That's just how I felt. 
No, I, I think you're right. And and what's interesting, you know, with the story, we're just kind of, again, we're making all this up, but, you know, they made a really interesting decision that they wanted to go to India this time. And uh, this is the first time that Bond's ever been on location in India. This is a new location. And I wanted to ask you guys how you felt like that went, because, you know, that is a a big step anytime Bond goes somewhere brand new. It's so great until they screw it up, <laughs> you know, like I love the fact that they go to India. I love that it's something that's new and exotic for Bond. And there, there's so much to be seen there. There, there, there. There's so much just sort of color to this movie. But man, I, when he gets off the boat and, and VJ's playing the James Bond theme song, because of course you have to have snake charmers is right there by the boat and of course you have to have some in-universe joke like bond knows his own theme song which is just a right why would he know bizarre that? choice you know um that makes far less he's doing his own theme music <laughs> makes far less sense than uh than the close encounters theme which Yes. <laughs> thing in that world where they yes it, it, close encounters is a movie in the james bond world that that's okay to me you know um but then throwing out lines like uh what does bond say to the guy like oh this will keep you in curry for a few weeks oh that oh. felt terribly uncouth to in, to do that not cool at all right and um it, yeah there were just so many little things that that felt like they had to hit you over the head that they were in india and then the fact that vj was a tennis star literally did every joke every scene that he was in have to have some reference to tennis like we get it right we get it the guy is a tennis star but in this movie he's an agent <laughs> so let's let him be that character shall we and like while he's driving, he's going to just whip out a tennis racket and beat people with it. It didn't even make sense that he would have it. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Well, they did say that he moonlighted as a tennis pro. So he just so. always has that with him all yeah, the time. Yeah, he always has it. Yeah, absolutely. You never know when you're going to give a lesson. Um, the thing about what they do, um, I, the locations are gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, uh, you end up with some crazy things happening in this movie because they're in India, which is when they're doing that chase sequence, that bicycle going through the middle of that chase sequence, mm -hmm. that wasn't planned. <laughs> right? That was just a dude riding his bicycle thinking this is normal traffic in India yeah. because yeah. that's what traffic's like. Um I don't know if they have car chases a lot, but, uh, you know. They might. Um, yeah. yeah, they might. Mm -hmm. uh, so, or, or should we say rickshaw chases? Yeah. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, you're you're right on the money in that the same way that Sergeant Peppa <laughs> gets used, um, India gets used here. Yeah. And it's it's not good. Um, the... the the Bond movies are using the stereotypes in really frustrating ways here. Like, you know, people get up in arms uh, about the way that Bond movies have treated women. But I honestly think that sometimes the way that Bond movies have done stereotypes has been worse. I completely agree. I mean, when we were talking about black exploitation, and then when we were talking about um, you know, other locations that they filmed and now with India, it, you're right. I mean, they've treated basically it as a completely a stereotype. Oh, everybody there eats curry 
and um, you know, it, it lives in a palace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and or or I'm sorry, um, snake charms uh, by the river. Mm-hmm. But but the locations were beautiful, and they could have just played it the route of this beautiful, mysterious place, and shown everything in that mm-hmm. light of like looking back on a fond memory rather than making a joke out of it and making you feel like they're stereotyping and um, offending people. Yeah, I mean, you think about if this movie had been filmed the way that Skyfall had been filmed, where those Mm -hmm. locations are just given so much love by the camera um, and and just makes you want to be there. And And this just sort of makes you feel like you're watching a cartoon part of the time. Like the The great stuff is there, but they kind of ruin it every step of the way, you know, or every other step of the way. Mm-hmm. Well, and it is too bad too because uh, VJ is such a a fun person. Yeah, like I really like him in this movie, and I like that some of the things that they give him to do mm-hmm. with Bond and and his. I, I, it feels like Roger Moore and VJ uh, are having a great time together. Mm-hmm. Uh, just you know, uh, goofing off, especially when they go to Q's lab and everything. And, uh, you know, all of that is, is kind of wonderful. Um, but the way that they use him to kind of poke fun at himself with the tennis and everything, it it is kind of a misuse of what could have been, uh, the Indian Felix lighter. Yeah. Right. Um, Right. Although, of course, you know, the way they treat Felix Ryder, they always kind of treat him as adult, too, for the most part, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, the the American CIA agent, whatever. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I I wonder if it's just the British superiority at that point (laughs) uh, coming out uh, a little bit. Um, And so, but it is too bad, because I, I think that, you know, the first time going to India... And uh, this character where it could have been something kind of special. And it is in the sense that um, I love the locations that they chose. Uh, mm-hmm. And the location mm-hmm. work is fantastic. Yeah. It looks really beautiful. Um, and the places that they chose to shoot, um, you know, uh, Khan's palace and then octopussy's lair there are are beautiful just beautiful places so uh it is well done and i think um this is where i felt like the design work um you know in some ways it stopped being outlandish in the ken adams sense but they were finding outlandish as the locations themselves gave them Mm-hmm. Which is kind of neat to see that switch. Like it's it, we don't have to design these cool places. Let's just find these cool places, um, and that actually adds to that authenticity that I feel like this movie kind of has. Um, in the same way that um, for your eyes only did, where it feels more realistic and down to earth because we're not building these crazy things or these crazy, um, you know, henchmen layers. We're actually finding places that people could go visit on vacation. Yeah. Um, which is something that I think, uh, again, it's, it's, it's why the, what they do with, I think the jokes and everything about India kind of hurts. It's, it's too bad. Like you said, John, if they had done the same thing that they did with Macau and, 
um, Skyfall. Skyfall. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. Oh, such great work. So, um, yeah. I will say, though, one point I do give them for something they did in a positive light reflecting India was with the sorry trick <sighs> that Magda does. Yes. Yeah, she escapes from the room. Yeah. She goes, I don't know how to say goodbye, and then just flips backwards <laughs> and dangles down. It was beautiful. Yeah. It felt like it was just this acrobatic move that I'm like, I want to do that. Yeah, it was really elegant. Yeah, uh, I love that bit. I, I, I feel like, uh, and, and we haven't quite gotten there yet, but but why not? I'll, I'll get us there. When we have things in the, uh, the, the chase of Bond's escape from the palace where telling the tiger to sit and then playing the, uh, the, the Tarzan yell as, as he's swinging across the Ugh. vines, you know, every moment like that, that is the triple take pigeon of this movie. And or the double take camel, if you didn't notice. No, wait, did I? Oh, there's there a, double a double take, take camel, camel that we missed. <laughs> the chasing. Oh, I can't believe it! I can't believe it. Yeah. So everything yeah. like that, it just sort of cheapened what was going on. It cheapened the danger that Bond was in. And yeah, I mean, we know that Bond ultimately isn't really in danger. We know that he's the good guy. He's the hero. He will win. But it, it also cheapened where they were. It felt like this very, uh, I, I don't know. Well, Matt, you, you kind of hit on it. You're talking about this sort of Western, not maybe not specifically British, but this sort of Western superiority. Like we're just sort of having a laugh at everything in this culture by imposing our own values on top of it. Well, and I mean, gosh, the, again, they they kind of did that when they made fun of Southern Americans, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, from the USA with Pepper, mm -hmm. you know, like they just kind of, oh, look how stupid they are, you yeah. know? And so, um, and it's, it's frustrating again, because it just kind of takes away in all of those places from actually supporting the film because they don't do that in For Your Eyes Only with the Greek culture and everything right. and the wonderful characterizations mm -hmm. we got with both of those Greek characters there, uh, you know, uh, the leading lady and, of course, um, and I'm blanking on the names right now. Forgive Topol. Me, can't can't forget my man, Topol. Yeah, Topol. Yeah, 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 actually, you know, so those things really work, and, and if they had done those same things here, they would have really benefited um, from that because, you know, when we're... I, I wanted to get to the villains, these Cold War villains... Um, I have to say, Stephen Burkhoff is a great actor, and he's been in so many things. Um, but it's so over the top, ridiculous here. Uh, his speech to the the Soviet Council there uh, is just like, I, I, uh, <laughs> I it, it, you caught me monologuing. I mean, that's he does this ridiculous monologue, and it's just. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it feels like you're watching Stewie from Family Guy <laughs> tell his team yes, yes. the plan. Our pinky in the brain. What are we going to do? Uh, the same thing we always do. Over Take the over the world. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so then it just feels like he's so, that whole thing with him is so unnecessary in, in that scene in particular. And that they could have played it more serious and made him seem more menacing and more of a danger to Bond. Than they did. I feel like still, Khan's henchmen, um, and um, maybe even um, Gogol himself come across more creepy and dangerous than Orloff does. 
Yeah, uh, Orlov, and it was funny, I kept thinking of um, Orlok, the uh, Count Orlok, the, uh, the the vampire from uh, Nosferatu, because he, this is sort of a, a creepier looking bad guy than uh, General Gogol, <laughs> you know, and it was sort of telegraphing that he's the bad guy right from the beginning. Um, not Bond's most subtle moment. In, in a movie, in, particularly in a movie that, that seems to be trying to throw you off of where it's actually going for, at, at various points. So, yeah, he was, he was fine. He was just sort of, yeah, like, like you said, as soon as he starts doing the monologue about how they're going to take over the world, then you just sort of go like, oh, okay, I, you know, I, I pretty much know that this guy is two-dimensional, so we're done with him. Two? I mean, he has... I think he has one dimension. <laughs> it's, it's to try and take over the world. <laughs> and that's it. That's oh. it. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. And I, I like what you're saying, Christy, because uh, I think that Khan's bodyguard, Gobinda, is definitely creepy and scary. And, like, he doesn't say much. You know, he kind of has that Jaws feel from, from Jaws' first yeah. appearance. Um, and I think he's actually done really well, and I, I like that character uh, as a villain and, like, the villain henchman. It's good. Like, this is kind of like a classic Bond stereotype character, but I felt like it worked well in this movie because they didn't silly him up uh, like they did so much else in this movie, and it that was great. That was a good choice not to do that. Yeah, I, he's menacing. He's menacing, and, and that I, I always kind of I, I don't know when I see a movie and there, there's a, a couple of guys in a fist fight, you sort of accept it. Um, but at any time to this day in a movie that um, a, a man slaps or hits a woman, I I flinch. And that moment in the airplane at the end. Mm-hmm. When uh, his bodyguard slaps uh, Octopussy down in the uh, in the, the the seating there on the side of the plane, I mean that that just looked and felt brutal, and uh, and then I wanted to see him die, and they did. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you will pay for your crime, <laughs> right? Yeah, I, but I still felt like he, like you're saying, is is better as a villain than Khan was. I felt like Khan's most convincing moment was when they're playing backgammon, which doesn't seem that threatening. (laughs) (laughs) But you feel the tension in that scene very well. I think that definitely between he and Bond, you know, constantly upping the bet and then the two of them just staring at each other quietly, like, are you going to take the bait was great. But then Khan just seems to have not much else to do and that it's all Gabinda. See, I, I don't dislike Khan. I, um, I, I, I mean, I'm a little bit biased here. I like Louis Jordan, and I was glad to see him as a Bond villain. Um, of course, he was great in Swamp Thing, but um, way before that in his career as a leading man in the uh, mostly the 50s and 60s, you know, he has this sort of, you know, erudite charm, but with this hint of evil that he can bring out so he made a good bad guy for a for a good run there um you mentioned that backgammon game i still to this day i love 
spend it quickly, Mr. Bond. Yeah, you know, which is great. You know, he's just just planning for Bond to be in some danger. And I also really love at the end when he's trying to get out of the palace, he's got his uh, printing plates to make counterfeit money. Octopussy catches him and he says, oh, I got this for us. We get it. I was waiting yes. for you. You are <laughs> such a weasel. You are such a little weasel. So um, I don't think that character is used to the best extent in this movie, but I do really like uh, Louis Jardin and um, wish that, yeah, they, they could have maybe pumped up the evil a little bit in him. I like that. Pump up the people. Um, <laughs> that's all I can think. Uh, no, you're absolutely right. The thing about uh, Kamala Khan is this. Does he really look like an Afghan prince? <laughs> no. Well, to, to a British no. production in 1983, he did. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, close enough. Yeah, right. right. But, but that's kind of a cool idea, though. I, I, I liked that they gave these characters a lot of background, that he was an exiled Afghan prince, that he's in all these sort of dirty dealings, that he's really, he's kind of a middle management guy. He's just out to make a buck from whatever end he can. He's not really in charge, but he's got a little bit of power, and he's not always the best at using it. Um, so I, I loved that you had background on him and of course we'll we'll talk about octopusy in a moment um so it gave him a little bit of something other than just the mustache twirling i'm going to take over the world which is what they gave to orloff yeah he comes across more as almost in the vein of a goldfinger who's much more interested in wealth mm-hmm. Uh, and acquiring it and making sure he can continue to acquire it than anything else. Um, and so he'll do whatever he needs to do to make sure that, you know, he, he can have that continuous income that he wants to buy him the pretty things that he likes and, and to get him into places that allow him to play backgammon and don't care that he's cheating people all the time with his loaded dice. Um, you know, I, I, I liked the character and i liked him they just disserve the character by not giving any like i don't feel like any of the villains here as uh, orlov or khan really have a ton to do they're they're mm-hmm. just kind of there to be a foil for bond when they need them and otherwise, there's not much else to them. And yeah. if they had spent maybe just a little bit more time just spending their time on one villain, it probably would have helped the story better. So if it had just been Khan and then Octopussy, and then, of course, you find out Octopussy is not quite a bad person and she's going to work with Bond, and, and you had just given it to Khan and he was maybe trying to pass this off to the Russians... That might have been a much better story because we would have been much more invested then. Um, right. You could have just cut out Orlov completely. Yeah. 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 Um, Bond women. It's it's time for us to, to get to them in this wonderful podcast that we're doing here. And um, I, I really liked um, Magda. Oh, I thought she was too. really fun in this movie. And uh, the fact that her and Maude Adams are both Swedish was great, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but she's she has a really strong presence on screen. She's just kind of a no BS person. Um, and I just I really enjoyed her character. 
I agree. I think that she definitely, um, Magda and the actress playing her, it came across as a very strong woman um, that could handle herself. And, you know, it kind of the, um, I guess I think of in an office, the employee that you can trust just giving them the task and then letting them run with it. You know, she gets her orders and then she knows how to handle the situation from there. Um, and I think that's why Khan trusts her to send her in to deal with Bond at first. And I mean, ultimately, she does accomplish her goal. She gets the egg from Bond, but Bond let her have it. I mean, we saw that he saw in the mirror she was slipping it up into her dress. But I think she was very crafty in how she handled it and maneuvered her body to hide it. And then, of course, like I said, that escape from the room um, and then working, you know, for Octopussy later. I think that she's very mysterious and a really good Bond girl. Um, But I think that... um, Definitely, it was interesting to see that they were originally thinking of going not with a Swedish woman at all for the women in this movie. They were more interested in going with someone from India and then changed their minds. And I'm kind of glad that they did just because of who we ended up with. But that's not to say that there weren't great Indian actresses that could have been great Bond women either. I just think in this story, it kind of fit better with the rest of the cast. Yeah, how about a uh, like a Percy Scambata uh, in nineteen eighty three to do this? That uh, that could have been cool, but um, yeah, look, I, I've got mad love for Christina Wayburn. I, I think she is awesome, and when you pair them up together, you've got Christina Wayburn and Maude Adams, um, who are neither sacrificial lambs nor victims nor idiots in this movie. You know, we we just had BB. We had Mary Goodnight. We've had these characters who are just, you know, on screen for a few minutes and you just feel horrible for them. Um, but that is not the case here at all. Um, Christina Wayborn's performance might be a little bit cold, um, a little bit stiff, but I think that's exactly what she's given to do in this movie that she is to be tough as nails. She is to be a little unreadable in this. Um, so I, I I love it. She's she's sort of fun and flirtatious when she needs to be with Bond, but you also know that it is totally to achieve her purpose, <laughs> and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then to see her kick some butt in the end is fantastic too, you know? Uh, she's a, she's a striking presence, you know. Her her face, her body, her whole presence is really kind of awesome, and that's that's a tough thing to do to stand up and be that memorable in a movie when you've also got Maude Adams as the lead female in this. Well, uh, she was also known for not holding her punches back during their fights and uh, put a few people on the floor literally uh with her her punches which because she was and one of the reasons they chose her is because she was such a physical person uh she could do the stunts that they needed her to do in fact all of the women that they hired to be in the movie and of course a part of octopussy's gang was to they they all had the ability to do everything they needed them to do um, stunt-wise, which was fantastic. And I think that really helps the, the whole thing. Um, you know, 
I love that um, who we do get, but I'm thinking, you know, Rissus Kambata, God, jeez, uh, <laughs> you know, she was in Star Trek, the motion picture. She's phenomenal actress. I cannot believe that they did not offer her a role. Yeah. In this movie, uh, when I think back of who that is, it's it's crazy to me because she is kind of she would have been perfect. Um, and uh, you lost opportunity to have somebody to represent then India female wise and be able to be strong and all of these things. Ah, uh, that's that's it's too bad. But um, I I like what both of you are saying about how both of these characters um. And specifically how, how Maude Adams, you know, she's the captain of her own destiny in this film. Um, and, you know, she is a more, a much more gray character in what she does. But the fact that, you know, um, she is willing to help out Bond to not have World War III happen um, makes for a great character. And I think having her be... Maud Adams and and her being at a more appropriate age for Roger Moore really helps their story together, um, helps their time together, um, and helps me buy it more. Uh, and so, um, I mean, I love that uh, Magda kind of you feel like she's using Bond to get mm-hmm. what she wants um, instead of the other way around. Actually, for one of the first times, um, but Maud Adams, it 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 feels. M- just kind of wonderfully, um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but it feels, they feel much more connected just because they feel closer in age. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a big part of it, but it's also a thing about maturity too. You know, uh, Christina Weyburn was in her early 30s when she made this, but but you could push or pull the believability of her age in either direction mm-hmm. because she has this maturity, because she has this presence on screen. So you're sort of okay with her manipulating this guy who's more than 20 years older than her. Um, uh, and then with Maude Adams, I, I don't know exactly how old she was when she made this movie, but um, again, she just has this sort of polish and charm and sophistication and she's playing the character dead on that you know she and Kamal Khan are both opportunists they're in it for profit but she the difference is she's got this moral core that just sort of has to be finessed <laughs> through the course of the movie you know that that's really it um, that, that separates those two um, and I love that we're given some background information on her about what happened to her father and about um, the, this life that she has carved out for herself. Although the one thing that I uh, kind of hate about the exploration of her character in this movie is that um, she's this mystery. We have no idea who she is. And yet her logo is everywhere. And she owns a circus with her name on it that travels through Europe. <laughs> you know right it should have been the easiest thing in the world Bond should have gotten a dossier like uh, yeah you can catch their train going through Europe oh you want to stay in a hotel owned by Octopussy sure they're all over the place <laughs> it's like she's the McDonald's of <laughs> right the 
McDonald's of blonde women. (laughs) Or blonde women, yeah. (laughs) One billion servers. Octopussy, it's a very popular name. (laughs) Um, You know, remember when all the girls were named Octopussy? (laughs) Um, Yeah, just, God. Uh, What's uh, interesting here is that there is a very small part we get for Money Penny's assistance by Michaela Clavela, I think is how you say her name. Uh, and Pen- playing Penelope Smallbone. Um, just such an interesting thing to start inserting the fact that we're going to basically need and, and poking fun very deliberately at the fact that we're, you know, everybody's getting old. And, you know, we're not going to have Lois Maxwell much longer, uh, if maybe at all. I mean, I, you know, it does seem very... Uh, clear that they were thinking we introduce her here and maybe we don't have her next time yeah i agree with you it definitely felt like it was the transition happening um but it also i felt like still was done in a more dignified way of showing money penny aging than the way they handled bond aging in for your eyes only Mm. you know it doesn't feel strange that this is happening i mean you can see um unfortunately it made me sad (laughs) looking at her lois that she's aging i mean you know it's not a secret and so it makes sense to you that they would be introducing someone that's possibly going to take her place or at least that maybe they've just got so much work that they need two women um but um yeah i i still think that that made sense and they handled it well i thought that scene was funny I I love the idea that they introduced her. I love the idea that realistically Bond's eye is wandering toward her. I felt so crushed when he handed her all the flowers. Yeah, that I was felt cruel. so crushed because I and, and here's the thing. Yeah, is it more dignified than handling the aging of Bond in the last movie? Yes, um, but. Could they not have found a way to put sort of a sweeter button on that moment that there's still something special about Money Penny? You know, uh, even if you would reverse that and he he gave one flower to Penelope and the rest of the flowers to Money Penny, something else to to say like you're you're the original. You're always my yeah, girl. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so I I felt a little weird about that but i did like that they were acknowledging things moving on see this is what's so interesting about bond movies at this point over 20 years but now looking back at over 50 years of bond movies is the little things that they do to build their own continuity even though it's not some strict continuity the way that that other film and tv franchises try to force um we had the moment in the last film with uh, uh, starting out with Bond at the grave for Tracy. So even though this is a different actor and a different time and a different movie, we're still saying, look, here's, if not a, a specific connection to that, here's a character thread that continues on, e- even if it's something that, uh, e- even if you're seeing a different person in that role. And same thing goes for... Um, uh, 
for for money penny at least we're acknowledging that this is a character who may not be there all the time so here's somebody else who can kind of work her way into your conception of the bond films more recently we started doing it with m and saying that m mm-hmm. is sort of the position name so that that could be multiple different people um, that we'll introduce you to over time. So I, we, I think we all allow Bond to play a little fast and loose with its own continuity. But then when they throw in those little hints to say there's a connection here, then I think that's really cool. Even you know when this movie came out and we all knew that Maude Adams was going to be in it, I think a lot of Bond fans thought, hmm, this is a continuation of the same character from The Man with the Golden Gun. And and it's not, but even if they had dropped a little hint in there just to say, like, oh, there's some connection there to this other mission that happened, you know, I, I would have been fine with that. Because they, they don't need to, like, hit you over the head with it and, and draw these, you know, perfectly connected dots between one movie and another. That's something they save for the later movies, for the Daniel Craig movies. Right. <laughs> and I'm okay, I'm okay with that because it's taking the same character idea, the same character threads, and just reshaping, rebooting, reinventing that. Well, and it is interesting that they never bring her back at all. I mean, yeah. she's not in yeah. any other Bond movies. So, And then, of course, Lois Maxwell, her last film will be uh, viewed with kill. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, a whole... Uh, era will definitely end with that one. Yeah. So um, I wanted to ask you guys kind of before we get to ratings, um, what you thought we had a interesting conversation, obviously last time with the theme. Um, what did y'all think of an all time high with uh, lyrics here by Tim Rice, who would go on to do incredible things with, you know, such as like, I mean, he did the lyrics with Elton John with the Lion King. I mean, this guy is, is very well known for being able to create and craft some fantastic songs. And, of course, one of the few Bond songs that doesn't have the the name of the film in the song. So, I will say I really loved the instrumental part of this song. Um, to take a, a little misdirection from the lyrics, um, I think that it that saxophone was beautiful, and it fit the era that this film came out in, and it fit the the intro and outro of the movie. Um, but I I felt like the lyrics were um, the lyrics and the music didn't seem to go well together for me. That the lyrics were good and the music was good, but for some reason it didn't make sense well together for me. I, I think maybe it also was that. Um, I feel like she could have used different words or they could have writing it um, than all time high. It just felt weak to me. Maybe there was a different way to say that. Um, Yeah, I'll take what you're saying uh, just a step further and say that uh, I thought the, the title music, the title song version of that is a terrible adult contemporary radio crap. I, I thought it was so, I so did not like that as a title song. However, the score, and including that instrumental version of that song, and the rest of the score is fantastic. Um, total opposite for me of the last movie where I thought the, the title track, Sheena Easton's song, was good, but the, the actual score, the Bill Conti score for that movie, was horrendous. And if I never hear it again, that'll be too soon. Um, mm-hmm. 
total opposite for this movie. I, I just, I, you know, the, the opening credits look like Bond opening credits, but that song is a snoozer. It is so uninspired. But then when you hear the soundtrack, and, and I, I don't know why that soundtrack isn't handled in release the way that the other Bond soundtracks are. I don't know if there's something going on with the rights to it or whatever, but I got a CD of it uh, a while back and it was put out by a different publisher than the other Bond soundtracks. And it's great. It is a really good soundtrack. Um, I just always skip the title song, that's all. <laughs> and it, you're, like you said, it feels very romantic, too. Mm-hmm. That um, just just the instrumental part without any words yep. does feel like fond memories and falling in love and um, you know taking things slow, but but the song didn't do it for yeah. Me. Well, and, and thematically, it says something about this relationship between Bond and Octopussy that, that yes. they are more of the same type. You can kind of believe a relationship there than you could with just some throwaway Bond woman. Yeah, I I agree with you completely, John. Uh, you know this soundtrack, uh, f- and, it, and of course it's John Barry mm-hmm. doing the soundtrack, and so it's it's much better uh, than what we got last time, and it's actually a really enjoyable listen too if you have it, uh, because it sounds like classic Bond, and he uh, he actually really does go back to many of the classic sounds that he's used before. And, and it's uh, definitely not rooted in the eighties either, which I think helps, you know, a lot of this um, and it just added to the film in a lot of ways, because there's a lot of this movie that kind of feels done before. Uh, But the soundtrack actually is a standout. And because it is connecting back to what they've done before. And I, I felt like it really worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, the song is, it's, it's whatever it, it, you know, um, it's kind of like the rest of the movie, a bit blase. So, you know, mm-hmm. it, it seems par for the course with the rest of the film. Um, and, and, you know, yeah, uh, it's not the worst, but it's not mm-hmm. great. So, and something I noticed too, uh, to interject with the, um, song at the beginning um, did you notice that it really felt like the beginning of the movie that, you know, how they always do this silhouettes of women and everything went a little too far? <laughs> well, it, it, it's a new era. They're, they're pushing the envelope. Yeah, um, yeah. Really pushing. I mean, they were, they, uh, thank goodness for that, pasties. But it, but it was also really boring. Like mm. it wasn't yeah. really all that visually interesting. Uh, yeah, as, just dark colors and yeah, yeah. Actually, one of the most boring ones that I've ever seen mm. Uh, mm-hmm. for a Bond movie, at least as we're doing a rewatch. Like it's just, it's not. Yeah, I mean, just putting like 007 and in, in like red neon floating over a woman's naked body. It, it's like I don't know. It just it felt last a, minute almost. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. yeah, like they we need an intro. didn't really think about it. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. Let's let's rate this one, uh, Christy. What? Where do you come down here with Octopussy? I know right out of the gate for me, this was a three on a scale of one to ten. It felt painful three quarters of the way through that I still had more to go. <laughs> Um, it felt like the villains were not really developed. 
that they had good standout moments, but that overall I wasn't really worried about Bond other than the situations he was getting in. It wasn't the villains that made me scared for Bond. It was like you said, Matt, that he um, seems to, they seem to be worried that he's not going to be able to hold up and perform this time, not talking mind in the gutter at all. Um, And I did like the, tasteful jokes that they had here and there that were you know a little bit dirty but that's something you're kind of familiar with especially with this era of Roger Moore films um like the joke in Q's lab about um getting it up (laughs) (laughs) yes cracks me up um but I felt like with the name of the movie and of um Octopussy the character it, it went a little too far into gross um and even Maud Adams herself apparently said that she felt like that was too far. Um, and, and that all of these other things like the, the opening song being a little weak, the intro being weak, and then feeling like the story plot points didn't make sense together in this puzzle. I, I really just give it a three out of 10. It didn't impress me on my rewatch either. Mm. Yeah. I mean, Gosh, everything you point out is is stuff that kind of drove me crazy about this. And you know, going back to the the, the India thing, even the sequence in Q Branch is like you're working in these jokes that are still culturally contextual. It, it just ah, uh, really? Why? Why? Uh, Cultural appropriation. Yeah, well, well, not even that. Is is just like joking at the expense of the culture. And I, oh, God. Ugh, yeah, just made, made me feel weird. And then Bond zooming in on on the, the woman sitting there at the desk and showing this. On, it, it just felt so juvenile. And, and not the sort of sophisticated, sexy kind of wink at the audience. Just a dumb kind of thing um so many little things like that drove me crazy in, in this movie but then there were so many things that i liked i love Maud adams uh, i i loved christina wayborn i i thought again roger moore is doing the best that he can with the material that he's given um he is actually trying to ground it and make you believe what's going on um louis jordan isn't given enough to do but i still like him um yeah, this is a really, really tough one. I'm not in any hurry to rewatch this movie, um, but I maybe liked it a little bit more. So I'll just go one up and I'll give it a four. I'm going to give it four alligator submarines uh, out of ten. Ah, this was hard uh, because the the movie had some things that uh, piqued my interest at the beginning. Uh, rewatching, I thought, oh, maybe this is going to be better than I th- I remembered. Uh, and by the end, I was like, no, no, it's not. It's actually worse than I remembered. <laughs> and that was a really frustrating thing to find uh, because I, I w- in this rewatch, I, I've always hoped that there would be some of these that would uh, have a, a different life, a second life, you know, uh, that I didn't know about. Um, and this just doesn't happen. Uh, for this one, and part of that is because everything is so mediocre here. Um, it it's it's as if they put Bond elements into a blender and poured it out to us, um, and and you can tell that things are tired. 
Um, part of it, you know, you understand why Roger Moore didn't want to come back. Um, he's tired. And I don't totally feel that yet. The great thing about Roger Moore here is that I don't feel it like I felt with um, Sean Connery. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though Roger is older at this point, I still feel like he he really puts in the investment to be here, um, which is the best thing that you can say about this movie, I think. Um, the second best thing is that Maude Adams and him as a pair is great. Yes. And mm-hmm. so um, that works. And um, I like all the things that, that you mentioned too, John. I think they're fantastic. Um, if we had reworked the story a little bit, we it, it would be different. Um, and uh, maybe if we had continued a little bit more in that serious vein from the last film uh, and then just had Khan as the main villain, we could have really had something cool here and special. Um, but yeah, they, they just, um, they take too many of the jokes for India too far and, um, they don't take the, it, they don't take itself serious. In fact, the problem with this one is that it's, it's in between serious and silly. Um, and they, they don't decide which way they're going to go. They try Mm -hmm. to walk the tightrope and they just don't walk it very well. And that's really, I think one of the main issues with the film as well. So all in all, um, you know, originally I looked on uh, my Letterboxd uh, account and this was rated two and a half out of five and became two out of five. Mm. Um, so that lets you know that it lost half a star just from rewatching wow. it. Wow, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, so, you know, that's that's too bad, but um, it, it's great that we get to sit here and talk about this stuff and, and have a good time doing it and and. This movie is not a total wash. Again, um, I really enjoyed Roger Moore and, and Maude Adams back together again, and I really enjoyed the stuff they had to do together. And so um, that w- alone is is what makes, I think, this one worth watching. At least if you're just doing like a watch through, it's it's worth seeing at least once, um, def- definitely for that. So um, super fun. I, we're going to complete all of Roger Moore's films uh, this year. So we have one more left with View to a Kill, so I can't wait to talk about that. And then next year, get to dive into Timothy Dalton and and Pierce Brosnan together. Um, And, uh, you know, we'll also have a new Bond film coming out with Roger Craig. We just, you know, I think it's 2019. Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig. So close. So close. Daniel Craig. So uh, I'm I'm super excited about that as well. Um, although I did just read that uh, Blofeld, or at least uh, his version of Blofeld, will not be in the film. So that's disappointing. So mm. anyway, but uh, if you want to catch up with us, you know all the places to do that. I really want to thank our associate producers Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson for making sure that everything we do here on the network comes to you, especially this show. Um, It's an expensive prospect to put all of this together here on the network. Uh, So go to patreon.com. Just go over there. I encourage you to do that right now. See how you can become part of our team and make sure that uh, all the content that we put out each and every week to you here on Trek FM keeps coming to you. Uh, Every little bit helps. Uh, Again, that's patreon.com slash Trek FM. 
Christy, uh, great having you back talking about Bond. Um, we'll have you back uh, a few more times this year. We're going to be talking about Stranger Things 2. And, Woo-hoo. of course, uh, one more Bond film. But uh, let everybody know where they can find you if they want to talk to you about Bond or anything else that you're doing. Thank you. I was thrilled to be back, of course, to get to talk about Bond with you guys. It's always a good time. And, you know, I wish we could wear tuxedos or something to celebrate every time. Hey, don't <laughs> um, tempt me. Can... Don't tempt me. I will. Yeah, John might. <laughs> he, might he, he might come as, like, you know, sexy tuxedo guy. So. Slow-mo tuxedo uh, guy. Yeah, it's, it's on there. Yeah. Um, but you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at morechristy, M-O-R-R. And uh, I am, of course, on the 602 Club reviewing Bond films here with John and Matt. But I also um, appear on occasion talking about other things like uh, mentioned Legends of Tomorrow we did in the past. And then uh, we're going to be doing Stranger Things 2. Um, and I also write for FangirlNextDoor.com and the Star Wars Report now. Um, so look for that as well. And John, uh, when you're not here talking about Bond, uh, where can everybody else find you in your other life? Uh, you can find me at uh, podcast.roddenberry.com. That'll lead you to Mission Log and to Mission Log Live. Um, we talk about Star Trek, oddly enough, for a guy who's on Trek FM. So uh, if you want to hear about Star Trek then and Star Trek now, those are two shows for you to check out among the collection of Roddenberry Podcast Network shows. And, um, you know, I believe the same day this show comes out, um, I will be a guest on Every Friday with Dan and Olivia. That's with Dan Miles and Olivia Dabo. Uh, we talked, I was a guest on their show, and we got to talk about everything from Star Trek to uh, creepy uh, 3D CGI recreations of actors uh, to my love of ocean liners. So uh, check out that show. And uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at DVD geeks yes definitely do that because uh john always has something interesting going on. I, I love following you man. it's so much thanks fun. dude uh, but uh if you want to find me you can find me on twitter matt rushing zero two i'm on instagram under the same name uh you can find me here on the network when we get a chance talking with uh chris jones about star trek deep space nine on the orb I'm over on the Nerd Party Network talking about Star Wars with my good friend John Mills over on Aggressive Negotiations. Total blast. You're going to want to check that out, so make sure you do. Uh, Doing Owlpost with Drea Kaufman where we're walking through Harry Potter each and every chapter. So great way to go through the series. Uh, If you've never read it, if you've read it, uh, it's, it's the perfect place for you if you're a Harry Potter fan. Or if you just need to be convinced that you should be a Harry Potter fan. Um, And then, last but not least, doing a show called Cinema Stories with my good friend Courtney. And we talk about films through the lens of faith. Uh, And you can find all of those shows on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And y'all, come back now, you hear? 